Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, September 19th, uh, 2023. Regular viewers, listeners of the show know that I was in the Philippines last week with my friend Maria Ressa strong Filipino activist on democracy and on our ability to start talking to one another again. She argues in all sorts of ways that we're not seeing one another and social media is undermining that. Uh, my guest today on the show, I think, is very much in the Maria Ressa camp. Michelle Lamotte teaches sociology at Harvard University and she has a new book out, Seeing Others, How Recognition Works and How It Can Heal a Divided World. I know she has some strong feelings on social media and on this idea of recognition. She's joining us from her home in Brookline, Massachusetts. Michelle, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. Um, you have this idea, Michelle, of uh, recognition chains. What exactly are they? The book is based on, in part, interviews with 185 uh, change agents, which uh, includes uh, Hollywood uh, creators, stand-up comics, but also people who work in the field of advocacy, and many people who are involved in philanthropies. And this concept of recognition chain is about alliances between different kinds of organizations that work together to diffuse narratives about groups that have been historically marginalized. So I give, for instance, the argument of the, the Oscar-winning film Roma, which was uh, produced by um, with the support of the um, uh, Ford Foundation. They have a program called Just Film, and it also involved the National Alliance of Domestic Workers. And what's extraordinary with this film is that it puts at the forefront the story is about indigenous uh, domestic workers who are typically, there's no story about them normally. They are the background of the middle class families that are at the center of the action. But in this case, you see uh, one of these young women is struggling because she needs to get an abortion and you really see her in a three-dimensional way, a deeply humanized way. And this is very uh, typical of many of the narratives and the narrative producers that I study in the book, which who are aiming at um, uh, giving recognition to groups that are often invisible or stereotyped. And uh, the example of Roma is partly good because it was massively diffused on Netflix. It's an award-winning movie that really contributed to making people much more aware of these uh, low-status uh, occupation uh, that are typically not recognized in our society. Yeah, and you wrote an interesting piece, and I think it was taken from the book, on uh, recognition chains, and you talk about Roma uh, in the book. It seems as if you argue in the book that there's something more broad about our socioeconomic structure, what you call neoliberalism. I'm always a bit wary of that term, uh, that is compounding our inability to recognize one another. Is that fair, Michelle? Well, it's tied to the hegemony of the American dream in the American context, but also in the British context, we can think of, you know, the notion of meritocracy. I suggest that there are uh, notions of what is the ideal member of society 
across all our societies and in the context of neoliberalism, which, you know, as I think many of your listeners are aware, became the way that our economies became uh, organized after the election of, of Trump and Margaret Thatcher, it's associated with market mechanisms. Really, You mean uh, Reagan and Thatcher, not Trump? Oh, yes, yes, sorry, Reagan and Thatcher, where uh, the state plays an extremely active role in, in removing all the barriers to maximizing profit. And with this comes a script of self or a concept of who's the ideal worker, the ideal person. And this person is someone who's very competitive, who is very self-reliant, entrepreneurial, who measures his value or her value through money and through uh, socioeconomic success. So the epitome of this is, of course, Donald Trump, but many other people who are celebrated, Elon Musk, we can go on and on. And this uh, character, his, this hero now is in deep crisis, especially since the 2008 recession, where many middle class people lost their footing, became extremely anxious about the downward mobility of their children. And indeed, those children, the millennials, the Gen Z's, do not believe that the American dream is possible. So they, we have a massive mental health crisis in these generation, and they are really looking for other sources of hope. So that's why I interview the change agents who are creating new models of who we should be as people and who are pushing for a much more inclusive approach to who's worthy. And that involves you know, looking at people who are not necessarily successful, but who can shine under different lights. Care workers, for instance, are now being celebrated. Did you interview, it, it, it sounds as if maybe some of the book is a little bit preaching to the choir. Did you interview, change, you, you talk about these people called change agents. Did you interview change agents you don't agree with? Well, kind of, yes. You know, I, I've also included people who are, uh, who represent the neoliberal end of, uh, of uh, inclusive capitalism and who want to create a capitalism that may be more functional, but very conspicuously and explicitly, the book focuses on the liberal and progressive end of uh, the narrative change and not on the conservative and Republican end, the American context, simply because there's already a number of studies that focus on that other end of the spectrum. And this is a book that could simply not do everything. That would be, if I, if I have it in me, I could write a sequel that would be on the other end of the public sphere. But I also now want to to write the next book, which will be about recognition in the global context. So you interviewed all these people. What, what were the conclusions? What did you learn from these interviews? Well, I'll give you an example. One of the chapters starts with uh, photographers who, in their work, are trying to depict uh, African-American queer people who are typically deeply stigmatized. Uh, one of them is a woman named Catherine Opie, who is very famous for uh, depicting the sadomasochist community of uh, Los Angeles. And she says that in her work, very inspired by the work of the painter Holbein, uh, she tries to paint them with dignity in their domestic environment, the way that she says they would like to be uh, represented themselves in a way that they view as noble. So it's an example of the kind of, and you can think of the singer Lizzo who is celebrating you know, body acceptance. This is happening simultaneously in many realms of our societies. And uh, I show that these changes in the, the the question of the book is really how do we transform the, the frames through which we perceive groups that have been deeply stigmatized? We can think of trans people. We can think of, you know, 
undocumented immigrants, many other groups, and how do we come to have uh, frames through which we perceive groups that uh, make room for more people being valued, if you will. And that's happening everywhere. And uh, a lot of the current push in unionization in the U.S., I believe, is very much tied to this with a lot of young workers uh, really fighting to uh, have access. And Amazon, the Amazon strike, for instance, was in part about having access to bathroom, restroom breaks, you know. So people want to have a workplace that is far more humane and, uh, you know, doesn't treat people like uh, uh, tools to profit only. There was a controversy recently uh, about a song called Rich Men North of, of Richmond by a, a country singer, uh, which created a great deal of controversy uh, because it was a song that suggested welfare cheats. But it also was a song that I think spoke to seeing others and the way in which liberal elites don't see the working class in America. What, what do you make of that controversy? Is this the kind of guy who who is helping us see others uh, or is he the problem it's it's complicated you know there was a recently in the new york times a big article on who are the supporters of the republican party and yes downwardly mobile working class people make a portion of this the majority of the support is not coming from them but you know i wrote i published in 2000 a book uh, titled the dignity of working man and one of the theme, it was based on 150 interviews in Paris and New York with workers. And one of the themes that kept coming back all the time was treat people as people. This notion of ordinary universalism that we, we owe to each other to recognize what we have in common as human beings. And that, you know, every humans want dignity. The workers want better wages, but they want also to have restroom break. So this, this controversy, I think, was celebrated because in some ways celebrated because the, the singer really is an homage to the difficulty of the working class, but also the ways in which they're being looked down upon by, by the bosses and by the upper middle class. And this is something that is rarely publicly denounced in the American context. And yes, there was this negative comments toward welfare recipients, but at the, another level, it was also uh, a celebration of solidarity. So uh, I think it's one reason why it was so controversial because it was contradictory and it spoke to different people very differently. Are you arguing then, or, or, or do the interviews you did with, with all these change makers in your view, are you arguing that what you call neoliberalism, you know, the, the Reagan-Thatcher revolution, has that changed the very cultural foundations of society? Is that the core argument you make? Absolutely. We have very clear data that the extent to which in the U.S., upper middle class people that is college educated professionals and managers are increasingly living in isolation from other classes. Uh, they live among themselves in the towns where you have excellent school system and the frequency with which they interact with people from other classes has declined drastically since the beginning of neoliberalism. There's a direct correlation. And that's partly because uh, college educated people are very anxious about, you know, providing as many advantages to their children as possible. It's called opportunity hoarding. And this is something that has become increasingly central to to upper middle class culture people want to put their kids in competitive you know pre-k's before they even start school and they hire uh, advisors on how to get their kids into the 
the best uh, kindergartners. So this is also okay. It's more elite cities such as New York, but you have aspects of this throughout American society. And at the same time, more and more workers feel that they are uh, invisible and they're perceived by losers. You know, majority of Americans don't have a college degree, yet it's a society that constantly celebrates uh, people who have college degrees. So it's a kind of past system at that level. And is there, I mean, are you aware of the, and some people might be watching this and think this is slightly absurd. This woman comes on and makes these arguments. You're a professor of sociology at Harvard University. Mm-hmm. You live in the very bubble you talk about. You live in one of the most, in one of the wealthiest, the most exclusive communities in America, in Brookline, Massachusetts. How are you able to look out over the ramparts uh, aren't you part of the problem yourself and harvard as as this bastion of, of priv- privilege and exclusivity yeah as i uh, write in the introduction of the book i'm an insider outsider i'm a french canadian i've lived in this country for 40 years with an accent i did my graduate work in france where i had many friends who had survived the khmer rouge or you know had partners who had died under the Brazilian dictatorship. And I've always looked at American society with a great deal of skepticism. And it's, yes, it's true. I'm a former president of the American Sociological Association. I'm part of the academic elite of my field. There's no question. But at the same time, my profession is very much critical thinking. It's the kind of sociology I've always done. And I've always being one of the people whose goal is to give the public the tools we need to understand inequality so that we can create a different society, a society that is more accepting for more people. So it's not because I teach at Harvard that I'm an agent of capitalism. I have uh, mentored a great many students of color, a great many first-gen students, and this institution is also very diverse internally, and it takes faculty like me to help first-gen students succeed. And of course, I've taught elite students as well, but I have an ethical commitment to, uh, to contributing to this. So, You write in, uh, in the book and in, in your a very interesting piece uh, on LitHub recently uh, on recognition chains, the role of social media. You, you worry about social media. You say media has been democratized um, in a way that the traditional keepers, gatekeepers have been gotten away with, but social media might be compounding the problem. Is this because platforms like Facebook and X are themselves a manifestation of our neoliberal order? Yes, but most importantly, I think there's a large literature on the echo chambers or the bubble filters. You know, there's a large literature on the polarization that is mobilized by uh, the social media. But we have to remember cultural messages diffuse also through face to face interaction, through what we we watch on the streaming services. There's many other sources of of, mental models of how to lead our lives. Also, you have higher education, you have religious institution, and those who spend their life on social media remain a very small proportion of the population. And those who post most are also the youngest people. So we cannot blame everything that's happening uh, through the social media. It fosters polarization that is very well established, but it also puts people in touch with a lot of other you know, depiction of reality that would not have been possible otherwise. So I think... Do we have... And how do we... You had an interesting piece on dignity matters uh, in in some of your speeches, but 
hasn't this become a kind of epidemic, um, Michelle? This this cult of dignity. I it's don't one think... thing to have dignity if you're not privileged, but everyone now is so thin-skinned. Everyone is so easily insulted. How can yeah. we make sure that dignity doesn't become just absurd and everyone claims dignity and everyone feels as if someone's insulting them and someone's yeah. out to get them? No, of course there are excesses, but also there are groups, like, for instance, trans people who insist that uh, you know, restroom not be labeled in a kind of binary way because they don't have a binary, uh, uh, you know, sexual identity. So, of course, the, the restrooms and the pronouns are often used as example of woke culture grown amok. But at the same time, there's a great many trans people who existed in the 90s when there was absolutely no language to talk about, uh, you know, their experience. But as it comes, when it comes to DEI, of course, we all talk about various kinds of privileges and, you know, growing up blind, growing up, you know, there's all kinds of handicap that determine people's life in an extremely deep fashion that, you know, I know that among, uh, you know, the disabled, there's, there's a lot of concern about putting all kinds of traumas on the same plane. And I think we need a social conversation also about uh, which traumas are, you know, really uh, putting enormous constraints on people's lives. And it's, it's complicated. You know, I think a lot of the working class uh, rejection of woke culture is because they think that their own suffering is much greater than, let's say, the suffering of the trans. But I think if we were all to really uh, accept that all human beings need dignity for subject, you know, for basic well-beings, that's a fact. And uh, I think we really do need a, a broader conversation uh, in our society about this very basic human needs. And that's why I wrote the book. Uh, in the history of the social sciences, there's always been a lot of emphasis on material resources as the condition for a happy life. Well, we know now that, you know, what young people call the... Um, uh, the hedonistic treadmill of consumption, you know, pursuing consumption and accumulation of, of material goods often leave people very anxious and empty and overwhelmed because of the amount of work that needs to be uh, exerted in order to benefit from the consumption society, that this is not a, a recipe for uh, emotional well-being either. So uh, the goal is really to, to foster a larger conversation. And unlike people who are just focusing on flourishing or a very psychological approach to this question. As a cultural sociologist, I'm interested in create the creation of institutions that foster this. So think about same-sex marriage law, for instance, that went hand in hand with a very radical decline in a number of LBGTQ youth attempted suicide. So that's an example where it's not something that's happening. It's not like grit at the individual level. It's really about creating societies where more people can feel that they belong because we construct institutions and we diffuse cultural repertoire narratives that are really empowering for more people. So it's a very different kind of approach than the woke argument, what I'm suggesting. I'm just not saying we need a more woke society. I'm saying let's acknowledge 
that the downwardly mobile uh, white workers to whom Trump appeals, Trump is successful in part because he acknowledges that they need they need recognition as well. And we need to figure out groups that understand their need for membership very differently all need to be, uh, in some ways, we, their needs need to be addressed in our society. We're and speaking can... with um, Michelle Lamont. She has a new book out, Seeing Others, How Recognition Works and How It Can Heal a Divided World. I want to talk more concretely after the break, Michelle, um, about fixes, about what kind of world you want to create. But uh, before the break, I just want to remind everyone that this show is brought to you by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. A lot of these issues are brought up in Liberties. I'm going to run a short uh, video about Liberties, and then we'll be back with Michelle Lamont, the author of Seeing Others. Don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com and you can subscribe there. We are talking with Michelle Lamont, the author of a really interesting new book, uh, Seeing Others, which is a, a kind of cultural critique, I guess, of, of, uh, of the divisions and how, uh, how we're not seeing others uh, and how we create recognition. Michelle, can all this be done without fundamentally changing the very structure, economic and cultural, sociological structure of society? Can this be done cosmetically or do we need to change the foundations of things? Well, I don't think that uh, the kind of change I'm talking about are cosmetic. All social classes have both a material dimension and a cultural dimension. If workers think of themselves as losers, they're in much worse shape than if they think of themselves as full members of our society. So, for instance, we know that low-income people in Sweden are way better integrated socially than they are in the U.S. And the U.S. is in the terrible, you live in San Francisco, you know about the presence of, the omnipresence of homeless people in the street. Whereas in Boston, we don't have many homeless people, in part because we have an elite that is deeply committed to creating the institutions which house the unhoused. It's a very, very fundamental difference. So yes, it's a question of material resources, but it's also a question of not stigmatizing people for their mental health problems, for instance. If some people are sick and they are there left on their own and society, our society is not addressing their needs in any way. So I think we need to consider seriously what kind of society we want to live in. I, 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 what I don't understand, Michelle, is that much of what you're saying seems just common sense. No one would disagree with not giving people dignity. What, yes. what are you saying that's, um, that's new here? Yes. Well, I propose a, um, 
I propose that this is not simply something that happened because we want to be caring, that we have to have an agenda for structuring our societies differently so that we create, for instance, institutions that give people a sense that they belong. The example of same-sex marriage that I gave earlier. And um, well, I also- you, so Sorry to jump in again here. I don't mean to interrupt. You say institutions mm-hmm. that recognize people's dignity. What? what Give me an example of this kind of institution. Well, same-sex marriage. Again, we have, uh, you know, uh, policymakers who have created a system by which this symbol, this sacred symbol of membership in a society, the capacity to, to marry, has now been extended to a group that has been historically deeply stigmatized, gay people. So now that they have access to this sacred institution, which has a symbolic aspect, tells them you're worthy. This has been passed. I mean, no one's arguing. Well, yes, but, you know, we have also abortion that had been passed and now it is it's gone away in most of the same sex marriage hasn't. No, but we know also that, for instance, if we take uh, admission, affirmative action, and admission in uh, higher education, the next step will be uh, affirmative action in the workplace. So we have reaction and counter-reaction. We cannot take for granted there's a lot of anti-trans law that are being passed throughout the United States. So, you know, we know that someone like Clarence Thomas very much questions the uh, same-sex law uh, and whether they should remain there. So, you know, it's, it's it's a tug of war about who belongs in this society. What new institutions would you like to see? I I take your point on sex marriage. I don't think anyone, certainly uh, any of my guests, and I hope none of my audience would be against the institution of same-sex marriage. But what what are the new institutions that you're calling for? I'm the last chapter of the book. The penultimate chapter is really to uh, make people more aware of the many ways in which organizations can diffuse broader understanding of who belongs. So think about the work family policies that many uh, organizations have put in place to help parents uh, you know, bring their kids to, to the doctor or take care of their elderly parents, acknowledging the fact that in the workplace, they're there not only as workers, but also as caregivers. So it's a case where you have a much more pluralistic, multidimensional understanding of who we are as human beings. And when you treat workers like this, you also have much less problem with uh, people quitting. You have a great, much more loyalty on the part of your workers and you can retain your labor force much better. There are clear studies that demonstrate this. So I think I'm kind of inviting in that penultimate chapter, the reader to really think systematically about how we make our decisions about, for instance, where we live, where do we send our kids to school? Do we send our kids to school in milieus where they will be surrounded with people exactly like them? Or do we, in the process of choosing a more diverse environment, teach them how to negotiate and not be scared of people who are different? So that's at one level. At another level, you now have an exploding literature in the social sciences, which is about tribalism and human nature. And it tells us basically that... uh, Human beings are wolves for each other and that we are engaging in, uh, you know, we admire and love our in-group and hate everyone else. And this is viewed as the current tragedy. But I I take your point. I mean, again, I don't think anyone would argue with any of this. But what institution are you calling for? You're you're saying that people should 
live in different neighborhoods? Are you, how, yes. how would that work? Well, you ha you have to make when you decide where you're going to buy and where who, where you want to live and with whom you want to live. Do you want to simply uh, send your kids to the school that is most highly ranked so that one day they can get into the most elite schools? Or do you want to give your kid an environment where they also have a chance to deal with people who are different from them? Those are very basic decisions that we make as human beings. But that, that, that's not... In, is that institutional or is that cultural? Yes. Well, these these uh, schools are the, the channels through which we can expose each other to different people. Same thing with deciding what church you go to. You know, we all know that American society is one where the level of segregation is the highest on Sunday morning. It's enormous level of... Uh, so, so using you, 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 I don't know if you have any kids, but using you as an example, you live in Brookline, incredibly exclusive suburb of Boston, mm -hmm. uh, I'm presuming mostly white, w would you suggest that you, you or in your argument that you, you would actively send your kids to a, a more mixed school in, I don't know, yeah. Roxbury or something? No, it's what I did. There's actually, I don't want to give myself as an example, but in Brookline, there's nine public school. We live in the neighborhood of the only one with a catchment area that includes two public housing projects, which means that my kids grew up with a lot of kids who are who are uh, low income and it gave them a very different understanding of social justice. Of course, their parents are sociologists, so that certainly contributes, but it's certainly a, an ethical choice that we made. We didn't want all their friends to be children. But aren't you falling into the neoliberal trap here? Rather than relying on institutions, you're asking people to make choices themselves and some sociologists who teach at Harvard might choose to do that, but most people won't. I think, you know, institutions carry cultural meaning as well. In all cases, we're all individuals making choices and ethical choices about how we want to, to lead our lives. My analysis is more about if we look at the data, it's very clear that uh, the, the, the instance of class segregation in our society has grown exponentially over the last 40 years. And we have at the same time as the level of homelessness in many of Americans' major cities has also grown exponentially. And how different uh, communities deal with this problem varies enormously with, you know, just to give you an example, in Massachusetts, we have a Republican mayor who passed a law that says that any community where you have public transportation, you also need to buy more, to build more affordable housing, uh, precisely to make, you know, housing more affordable in Massachusetts. And Michelle Wu, who is the first person of color elected uh, as mayor of uh, of Boston, as passed is in the process of passing a very similar law. So there's real. You have, you know, in California, many NIMBY movements, right? Not in my backyard. People do not want low income housing in their neighborhood. And you have other communities where you have strong YIMBY movements to say, yes, we want societies that are more integrated. Uh, and where we want to live with more diversity. There's great awareness of the ways in which people across the social spectrum are living. Uh, do you have models of societies, and of course they're not American, which work better? Are you talking, I mean, often in this show we joke about Denmark. People always seem to point well, to Denmark or Germany or Scandinavia in some way. Well, Tokyo is, a, you know, Japan is a society that is far less unequal than American society. And it's a, a society, Tokyo is a city of 38 million people where 
differences across neighborhood are minimal, especially when compared to Americans. And this is a very basic, you know, decision that was made in urban planning. And it means that people, you know, are not living lives that are as segregated as we are. Brazil, on the other hand, is an extremely unequal society, but it's also a society where you have rich and, uh, you know, less wealthy uh, neighborhood back to back. And you have also a lot of boundary crossing when it comes to phenotype, skin color, uh, much greater than we see in American society. So these are patterns that are empirically documented and that have to do with the kind of choices that uh, people have made concerning what kind of society they, they, they create. A friend of mine just completed a book on uh, the educational system, indeed in Denmark and uh, in the UK, that shows that the UK system was very much organized around basically keeping the working class down, whereas in Denmark, it was all about constructing a, a strong community. So their basic you know, cultural models that are behind the creation of these institutions that make a real difference in what the society looks like. So, uh, Michelle, for people who, 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 who like your, your idea of seeing others, what should they do? Should they actively move? Should they send their kids to different schools? Should they rethink their lives? Yeah, I think <laughs> probably, you know, ask themselves what kind of world do they want to to leave to their children? I mean, what is the purpose of living a life that is fully oriented toward accumulating resources? We know that it's not correlated with subjective well-being. There's now a huge crisis in the American upper middle class because people have suffered from being overworked and anxious. There's a mental, deep mental health crisis and the level of alcoholism is also enormously high, not to mention other forms of substance abuse. So I think it's, you know, in the context of the growing inequality that we've experienced over the last decades, we really need to ask ourselves, what kind of society do we want to live in and what kind of society will foster greater well-being? So 